0: Jesus and uh, his men have kind of come off a, um, a time of ministry. Uh, they were sent out, first of all, two by two, and they had a tremendous taste of ministry which was necessary because very soon, as I've said before, he was going to be leaving them and he had to begin to more and more turn over to them the ministry that he was someday going to be giving to them completely. After they ministered for a while in various areas and all, two by two, they came back and were all excited but exhausted. So he took them by himself to a kind of a deserted place. And there they spent some time alone together. But it wasn't long before the multitudes found them up near the area of uh, modern-day Lebanon. And they began to enter into a time of ministry again. And they're kind of coming off of this. It's kind of winding down now. And it says here in verse 13, And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So they reasoned among themselves, saying, it is because we have no bread. <laughs> now, <laughs> we get a kick out of these guys because <laughs> they're they're real lovable, but they're real dull uh, in spiritual understanding. And um, in, in all fairness to them, I think that in a lot of ways, uh, in our growing process as Christians, we were uh, at their place, you know, ourselves. I mean, uh, there are times, no doubt, early on, that we. We're not quite as in tune to the Spirit as hopefully we are today. Uh, these guys uh, were faithful. They tagged along with the Lord, but they were a little dull. They were a little slow to learn the lessons he wanted them to learn. And he had just finished feeding 4,000 men plus women and children just a short time ago. Not too much before that he had fed 5,000 men plus women and children. So 20,000 then, 15, 18,000 just a short time ago. When he fed the 5,000, they took up 12 small baskets full of fragments. When he fed the 4,000, he took up seven large hamperfuls of bread afterwards, you know, scraps and all. And they get into a boat. Now, they were over in the area of the Decapolis, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. It's primarily gentile country decapolis means ten cities it was a real roman kind of a area strong roman influence and all in fact it was called sometimes by many uh, little rome because it was kind of like uh, uh you know rome away from rome if i could put it that way but uh, they were over there ministering and now they get into the boat and they're going to cross the sea of galilee that's going to take about six hours it's not that far across uh, what is it now? Something like six, seven miles. But you know, by boat, it's going to take you a little while. No motors back then, of course. So, uh, and, the, and the idea was that they only had one loaf of bread with them for a six-hour journey. And they're probably going to want to eat along the way. And of course, when they got to the other side, bread would be in abundance. It wouldn't be an issue once they got to the other side of the sea. So it was right now that they were kind of concerned about it. And they got into the boat, started off on this six-hour journey, and recognize oh we've only got one loaf of bread oh why didn't we think about bringing more food along and then all of a sudden as they're in, in you know kind of whispering among themselves are not you supposed to get the bread no i thought you were going to get the bread well, we've only got one loaf of bread you know and what are we going to do you know and while they're kind of no doubt thinking about this maybe even whispering about it the lord launches into a spiritual lesson that he wants them to understand and remember take heed beware of the leaven of the pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now in chapter 5 remember that he had come across or Herod had heard about Jesus. And Mark kind of gives us a little bit of a uh, flashback into what Herod had done with John the Baptist because John had accused him of uh, of uh, adultery and taking his brother Philip's wife away from Philip and marrying her himself. And the whole Herodian family was a real mess. We talked about that when we were in chapter 5. But this was on Jesus' mind. And then the Pharisees had come to him in chapter 8, verse 11 and 12 and said, you know, give us a sign, give us a sign to show us you're real. And he had done about all the signs you could possibly imagine that he could have done, you know, raising the dead and walking on water and making water into wine and so on and so forth. Uh, it was obvious that they just had a hard heart. and They just didn't want to believe. So he was thinking about the Pharisees. He was thinking about Herod. And on the way back he uses the opportunity to kind of launch into a little bit of an exhortation says look beware and almost every time the lord used that word it was always in regard to false doctrine he said beware of the leaven of the pharisees and of herod now leaven is always always used in the bible to denote sin or evil it's always used symbolically of evil in fact, the Jews understood the term so much to be that way that they would actually use the the, the concept of leaven with re, like we would use original sin. Uh, they would talk about man being leavened from his birth. I mean, uh, the idea being that they were born with sin, even as we would talk about original sin. The Leaven was always bad. And the idea with leaven was, leaven was a piece of, what they would do is they would make their bread every morning, their dough and all. And before they would bake it, or make it into loaves to bake, they would take a little starter piece out of the dough, a piece that had already been leavened, and just take it and they would hide it in a damp cloth to keep it you know, moist, and that would be the piece they would use for the next day's batch. And they would keep doing that, and then every time they make a new batch of dough, they take the little starter piece out where they had hidden it or kept it, and would mix it in with this fresh batch of dough and let it just sit there for a while, under something and the yeast or the leaven in that one leaven piece would permeate throughout the whole lump of dough and it would uh, it would rise it through a process of fermentation or putrefication. It would actually cause it to be puffed up by rotting it really. That's the process of leavening of, of how yeast works. It became such an apt illustration of sin that not only did the Jews pick up on it but they picked up on it no doubt because God had introduced it in such a way. God had told them that during the Passover, they were to purge their houses of leaven. And all throughout the next seven days, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, which came right after Passover, they were to eat unleavened bread throughout that whole seven-day period. And the idea was Passover spoke of redemption, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread spoke of sanctification, and once we're redeemed, God wants us to immediately begin to live a new kind of a life, a holy life, an unleavened life. And that was the whole idea, see? And that illustration of leaven being a type of sin was picked up and used throughout the whole scriptures. Jesus used it here in that regard. Paul the Apostle in Galatians uh, said, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Speaking of the Galatians allowing sin in their midst and all, it's never used in a positive way, although some like to say that the parable that Jesus told of the woman who took leaven and hid it in three measures of meal is the only time when leaven is used in a good sense and it's used of the church. We're the leaven and we're hidden in the world and we cause the whole world to become, I don't know, Christian? I doubt it. You know, Jesus said, I don't pray for the world, I pray for those that you give me out of the world. So I'm not sure what, how that illustration fits. In fact, I heard a, well, a pastor on the radio today, a good teacher, but he obviously believed in that point because he was saying, I want this church to be leaven. I want, and I'm like, <gasps> leaven, I'm like, that's bad. You shouldn't say that but he was obviously had interpreted that parable that jesus told with regard to leaven being the church i mean i just knocked off my seat practically because i'm you know so co- convinced that leaven is always used in the scriptures in a negative way far from speaking in positive terms jesus was talking about the Satan we're introducing to the true church of jesus christ sin leaven false doctrine in matthew's gospel the parallel passage says that jesus said beware the leaven of the pharisees and the sadducees which is false doctrine. Now they had other leaven in their lives. They had hypocrisy, right? They had self-righteousness, but primarily there was false doctrine. And false doctrine is something that Satan will introduces into the church every once in a while, and boy, it gets a foothold and it seems to run wild. It permeates so quickly through the body of Christ, some of these heresies, some of these false doctrines. I am absolutely amazed. I wish the truth would spread as quickly as some of these heresies spread throughout the church. You know, it's really sad to see it. Uh, Christians that you think should be more grounded than that uh, are really um, swept away by these various winds of doctrine. Paul the Apostle said there was going to come a time in the last days, just before Christ's return, that people would depart from the faith. They would not want to hear sound doctrine anymore. And the words sound doctrine in the Greek is healthy teaching. They wouldn't want to hear a good solid healthy teaching from the Word of God anymore but they would gather to themselves teachers that would tickle their ears and they would turn their ears away from the truth and be turned to fables or fairy tales. And in the Church of Jesus Christ today, there seems to be a lot all kinds of false doctrines. Uh, the two Main camps seem to be on either end of the spectrum. The charismatic camp has their own set of false doctrines, the positive confession and the whole uh, name it, claim it, faith thing going on. But the conservative camp has its own heresies that it is totally blinded to and feels very self-righteous in pointing out the sins of the charismatic camp. And yet I think they've even embraced a bigger heresy that they're totally blinded to, and that is the heresy of psychology. I was reading Dave Hunt's newsletter, The Berean Call, today. And uh, they were critiquing a book by Karen Mains, whose husband has a radio show on Moody, Chapel of the Air. And I don't question these folks' love for the Lord. I don't question their sincerity for God. I'm not questioning their hearts, but I question their teaching. When they go public with these things and uh, mislead people, away from the truth of God, yeah, I definitely will stand up and question that. And, you know, it's a shame that Moody will not let teachers like Chuck Smith or Raul Reese or David Rosales on because, oh, they're charismatic. And yet they let all these other people on. And I'll tell you what, some of the psychological teachings coming out of this, uh, these ministries on on Moody and other stations is frightening. And here's a woman who is into union psychology. Carl Jung, we talked about him Sunday. She believes in inner healing, visualization. She believes in, in the the female self for her husband and the male self for her, which Jung called animus and anima, the, you know, the, the male part of the female and the female part of the male. It's pure psychology. Uh, she's got uh, a, a couple of Catholic nuns that are leading her on some mystical, spiritual journeys that are obviously unbiblical and out on left field and all this stuff that is in this book and, and, and it's incredible some of the excerpts that were quoted of things that she believes and I shake my head and I go Lord what is going on here these people ought to know better these folks have been Christians for years How could they possibly get tripped up into all this psychological garbage and Eastern mysticism and all kinds of Hinduism that's kind of been uh, Christianized and all? Lord, where is the. People are just abandoning your word. And it's amazing to me. The leaven has spread so much throughout the church that there are people that would, if you attacked their psychology, or their counselors who are heavily into psychology, they'll defend them and their teachings more than the Word of God, because after all, I tried the Bible didn't help me. I had to go somewhere else. Oh, really? Well, that's news. That's news to me. I mean, the Bible isn't sufficient anymore. Good heavens! It sure helped the early Church be victorious and was all they needed in the first three centuries of the Church's existence, where they they won the whole known world practically to Jesus Christ. Why all of a sudden is it no longer sufficient for us? So Jesus Christ warned of the leaven of the Pharisees, which was false doctrine, and false doctrine, unfortunately, is alive and well today in the Church of Jesus Christ. And it's killing the body of Christ. If Satan cannot defeat us through a direct frontal assault, he will try to infiltrate into our ranks the poisons that he will somehow infect us with that will spread throughout the body internally and begin to kill us from within. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. Now... We talk about false doctrine. There's not only theological false doctrine. There's other kinds of false doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. And people buy into all kinds of false teachings. The Pharisees, yeah, they were the religious camp which sold their false doctrine. But Herod was a political leader. And Herod was a kind of man who was, and his whole family lineage, was obsessed with power. They, they, you remember Herod the Great killed the, two of his wives, all of his sons. In his first two marriages because he was paranoid that they might try to take the throne away from him. It coined a phrase among the Jews it's safer to be Herod's pig than his son because every kid he had every son he had he would kill because he was a, he was paranoid of his power and he passed it along to then eventually his one son who was ex- his successor but the uh, Herod was was a man who was obsessed with wealth with power with prestige with possessions he was a guy that was that was his whole philosophy of life you know the one who dies with the most toys wins I mean that wasn't something that we see today on uh, cars that probably a bumper sticker on cherries back then I mean Herod definitely subscribed to that whole philosophy and so Jesus Christ was just basically I believe covering the spiritual and the physical he's saying look beware of any kind of false teaching any teaching that would move you away from the truth whether it be the truth of God in theology or the truth of God in a physical sense. And he talked about, uh, about uh, your, your treasures, making sure that your treasures were in heaven and not on the earth because wherever your treasure is, that's is where your heart was going to be. And so if your treasure is here in this world and uh, trying to acquire power and possessions and so on, uh, it's wrong. It's wrong. And so Jesus was warning of these things and uh, telling his men to beware of these false doctrines that were uh, creeping into the church or would, would creep into the church. But verse 16 says, So they reasoned among themselves, saying, Oh, it's because we have no bread. See, now he's talking in spiritual terms, and what are they thinking? They're thinking in physical terms. Lest we get too hard on them, oftentimes we do the same thing. The Lord is trying to communicate to us on a spiritual level, and we're so locked into the physical. It's all we can think about. It's all we understand. And Jesus told his men, he said, Look, don't you understand? In Matthew chapter 6, he says, You know, he says, Your heavenly Father clothes the lilies of the field more beautifully than Solomon in all of his glory. Learn a lesson from the birds of the air. They don't sow nor... Uh, nor cultivate nor harvest nor gather into barns that your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more important than birds and flowers? He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things God will supply to you. In other words, guys, your physical needs are very important, Jesus was saying to his men. And, And the Father understands that. He made you. He knows you have physical needs. He knows that they're legitimate. And he fully intends to provide them to you. But he does not want us to live on the level of the physical. He doesn't want us being so preoccupied with, our f- with food, clothing, shelter, that all we can think about is where am I going to get my next meal from? How am I going to make the rent or whatever? Jesus said, look, your heavenly father fully intends to provide these things, but keep your mind focused on the spirit Realm. I mean, rise above the physical. It's important, yes, but don't live on that level. Rise above it to the level of the spiritual. Be consumed and concerned with the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everything else He'll provide for you. And that's a lesson that we as Christians desperately need to realize. We get so locked into our physical needs because they're so important to us. When you don't have food, hey, you know it right away. Your stomach begins to hurt. You don't know where that rent payment is going to come from this month. You might be out in the street. Hey, those are some real, legitimate, practical concerns. That's where we all live. But we shouldn't live there. We should realize that the heathens worry about these things because they have no Heavenly Father to depend on. But that's not the case with us. We need to trust our Heavenly Father to provide these things and just concern ourselves with the things of God. See? Now that doesn't mean I can just sit at home and pray all day and read the Bible and say, Well, Lord, okay, I'm just gonna go ahead and kick back and pray, and I'm gonna study the word, and you're gonna have to just provide my meals and my clothes. No. No, God says you don't work, you don't eat. But the idea is that there's a balance there. See? There's a balance there. I think it's in the book of Ecclesiastes it says, um, better is one one handful with contentment than two handfuls with grasping and anxiety you know it's great work for what you need but don't be obsessed with it some people have more than they need and they're still working two and three jobs to get more than they need and they've got handfuls of everything and they're just still stressed out and full of anxiety there's a balance there there's a balance and so Jesus was talking on the spirit level And these guys, as so often was the case, were locked into the physical level. And I want you to see something here, because this is really a lot of times where we live too. They got into the boat, and they realized, uh uh-oh, we didn't get bread. We blew it. We weren't real responsible. We weren't real good servants to the Lord. We should have got bread, right? And they know that they've kind of blown it, and so they're feeling guilty about it. Now, they're preoccupied with this guilt, and then when he starts talking to them about spiritual things, they're so locked into this whole thing, and they're so feeling so guilty that they automatically interpret his words as being a rebuke to them for not buying bread. See? They're so convinced that they were crummy servants and had failed in their responsibilities that it kind of, when he started to talk, they interpret it as being he was blaming them for the very thing they were blaming themselves for. And in reality he wasn't even thinking about that he was thinking about something else entirely but you know what that's where we all live too we get so hung up on relating to the lord through a performance basis you know when we know it's grace but so often we relate to the lord based on our performance and how good a servants we are how faithful we are as christians and when we blow it, we don't live up to this level of expectation we think God is setting for us. And everything we read in the scriptures, everything we hear from the pulpit, suddenly we interpret as the Lord being angry with us because we're not measuring up. When in reality, he's no, probably talking about something totally different. And all this, this guilt trip and this uh, where I'm punishing myself is just getting in the way of us hearing what he's really trying to say to us. Hey, God knew what he was getting himself into long before he ever created us. He knew me before the foundation of the world, and he chose me, knowing full well every sin I was going to commit, how unfaithful I was going to be at times. He still chose me. I can do nothing to surprise him doesn't mean I can't grieve him but I can do nothing to su- when I when we talk about disappointing God there's no such thing as disappointing God because the whole concept of disappointment implies you doing something that God didn't expect so you let him down you don't let God down God knows you better than you know yourself so we don't let God down we can grieve God but we can't disappoint God he know, knew full well what he was getting himself into before he ever chose me to be his child therefore let's get out of this guilt complex mentality where we're always allowing the enemy which is who it is to point out all the times we blew it or all the ways we didn't really measure up which has got us then totally focused on those failures and the Lord wants to bring us he's talking about something totally he's worried about the kingdom and we're worried about ourselves. Oh, what is me. Boy, My rotten Christian. And we're always wallowing in the self-pity. And the Lord is saying, can we move on? I, I knew you were going to do that. Hey, come to me. Ask me for strength for the next time. But can we move on now? The work is great. There's a lot of work to be done. There's greater issues at stake here. People are dying because of false doctrine, theologically, politically, and otherwise. And we need to get our eyes focused on a dying, lost world and off of ourselves. I'm convinced, and I'll speak for myself, uh, I'm real good at feeling sorry for myself. And that's something that the Lord is really having to work in my life about, you know? Oh, Lord, I didn't measure up. Oh, God, was that? did I do a good job on that? Or that study didn't come across real well. I really blew that. And oh, woe is me. And the Lord's saying, you know, when are you going to get off this deal, you know? There's people that need to hear about me. And all you're doing is feeling sorry for yourself. And so something that we need to really kind of take to the heart. These guys so locked into the physical, so... Convinced that they had blown it that they weren't it was getting in the way of what he was really wanting to say to them And jesus being aware of it said to them now, now the lord knew their hearts He knew what was going on. He's trying to talk spiritual there. He said why do you reason because you have no bread now? Can you almost sense the exasperation in the lord's voice? It's like guys wake up. I can just see him trying to grab it and shaking some of them You know, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Nor understand, is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. And when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said, seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? hasn't any of this sunk in guys i mean what do you think i'm doing these things for yes to feed people and to help people but i want you to understand some things here don't you yet understand who i am see i'm convinced that's what he meant when he said to them don't you yet understand as your heart's still hardened back here in chapter six after he had fed the five thousand remember he got into a boat and then they or he uh, actually, uh, they got into a boat and they began to row across the Sea of Galilee and the storm came and they were tossed for hours on the Sea of Galilee and it looked like they just might go under and here he comes walking on the water to them. and They thought he was a ghost and he said, be of good cheer. Verse 51, then he went up into the boat to them and the wind ceased and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. What didn't they understand about the loaves? That he was able to multiply those loaves because he was no mere man. I mean, was he a magician or was he Messiah? I mean, who was he? That's what he wanted them to understand. He wanted them to understand who he was. He said, be of good cheer. It is I, when he came walking to them on the water. The Greek though is, I am. Be of good cheer. I am. Well, that's the name of God, the name that God spoke to Moses out of the burning bush. Said I am. See, Jesus said, "Why are you afraid? Be of good cheer. Don't you realize I'm God? Don't you understand yet who I really am? Who you're following? Who you who you have committed your lives to that you should be afraid? If I tell you to go over, I'm not going to let you go under." And here again, after he fed the 5,000 and the 4,000 and all this bread laying around that he had multiplied and all these baskets full of bread, and they get into the boat and they got one loaf of bread, you'd think that would have been the last of their worries. Well, Jesus is here. What do we got to worry about? I mean, man, you see all the food we left behind? I mean, we got more than enough. We got one loaf of bread. He can multiply that and feed all of us. But no, they still didn't learn they forgot quickly all the things he had done before this they had seemed to forget and you know what we tend to do that too no matter how God has worked in our lives in the past when the new trial comes oh so often we're racked with anxiety and fear and we're upset we don't know what's going to happen what how in the world we're going to ever see daylight at the end of this tunnel and the Lord is saying don't, don't you yet see don't you, don't you yet understand all the things that I've done in your life in the past? Why should it be any different now? If I've done these things in the past and I've gotten you through these crises and I've supplied your needs when it looked like there was no way you were gonna see any kind of provision for your need, why don't you believe me for this time? You know, gang, I'll tell you this. We, we talk about sins as Christians. We talk about things like murder, And homosexuality and adultery and fornication and sometimes we talk about alcohol or drunkenness and other things like that but how many of us ever talk about probably the greatest of all sins the sin of unbelief we know it's a sin and yet it's a sin that we seem not to see as a big deal and yet i challenge you to search the scriptures you will find more said in the scriptures about the sin of unbelief than you will find about any other sin. And I'm not talking about unbelief in the sense of agnostics and atheists and reprobates. I'm talking about the sin of unbelief with regard to those people that claim to know God and have a relationship with Jesus Christ and have His Word and His promises that He has given to us and still we can't believe that He's going to do what He said He's going to do. So that when a trial comes up or I have a great need Even though the Bible says he will supply my needs, all my needs, according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And yet, what do we do? Well, I know you've said that, Lord, but I, I just don't know if I can really believe it. What are you calling God? You're calling God a liar. There is no greater sin than that. God places his word even above his name. And for us to look at the word of God and to hold on to a promise of God and yet say, but I don't know if I can really trust that. We may not say it in those words, but we're thinking it. That is a tremendous sin. And the Bible says that all the people that God led out of Egypt, he later on killed in the wilderness. Why? Because of unbelief. Hebrews says that this word of God will do us no good. It did them no good because it was not mixed with faith by those who heard it. That's why I'm convinced there are Christians who are walking around desperate, depressed, feeling like they're being swallowed up by their problems, full of anxiety and stress and everything else. Why? They don't trust God. They don't believe what God has said. Oh, but I pray. I read the Bible. I go to church. Why do I, am I so depressed still? Why do I feel such anxiety? Why am I so stressed out? Why? Because you can go to church from now until Jesus comes back again. You can read your Bible nonstop every single moment of every day. You can pray for 12 hours at a time and still not be victorious, still not go anywhere in your Christian walk. Why? If it's not mixed with faith. If it's you're reading these things with a heart of unbelief, you're wasting your time. You can pray for two hours, but that whole two hours, you're just simply calling God a liar for two hours because you're not really trusting him and what he has said. Now, these guys needed to learn to trust the Lord bottom line they were dull of heart they were insensitive to his power in the sense that they just were so consumed with the physical they didn't see the spiritual they didn't see who he was they didn't believe in what he had done and how it applied to their every single need every day of their lives and he was exasperated by it he said how is it that you do not understand and you know what i'm convinced the lord if he was could stand here today visibly would say the same thing to us How is it that you do not yet understand? O ye of little faith, why do you doubt? Why do you look at trials that I bring into your life to allow you to exercise your faith, that you might grow and be blessed? Why do you look at those as things that I've allowed that would hurt you or crush you or proof that I don't love you? The very things that you feel are a proof that I don't love you are the very things I'm trying to, to use to bless you. But it's all dependent upon your faith. And he told these guys over and over, why did you doubt? Oh, ye of little faith. Very important point. You know, these guys needed to learn to trust him. Because very soon he was going to be taken from them. And they were not going to be able to run to him physically. They were going to have to trust him and pray. And just trust that what he said was true. And if they would ask anything in his name, he would... Give it to them. Let me just say this. Unbelief will sever you from, first of all, the power of God. You can just write these four thoughts down. Unbelief will sever you from the power of God because we are connected to God through our faith. It's faith that allows us to be connected to God and the power of God to flow from God through our lives into this world around us. So unbelief will sever us from the power of God and you'll never find a Christian who's walking in the Spirit and w- living a dynamic life who can't seem to trust God you know, or believe what God has said. You'll never see that. Unbelief will sever you from the peace of God. And that's why I'm convinced so many Christians are depressed and distressed and anxious and everything else. Because it's only when you read the Word and believe what God has said can peace ever fill your heart. Unbelief will sever you from the promises of God. Remember how Israel, God promised them the land of Canaan. It was their promised land. The first generation failed to enter in through unbelief. and were driven back into the wilderness and died there. And the writer to the Hebrews says they could not enter because of unbelief. Now God has given to us many great and precious promises, it says in the word. They are our spiritual promised land in a sense. Which when we enter into them by faith, we enter into a place of victory and blessing even as Israel did when they finally entered into the promised land by faith. But just because God has given to us many great and precious promises does not mean that they're ours automatically. We have to lay claim to them by faith. And you know, a lot of Christians think, well, you know, if God says it's just going to happen, I don't have really have to believe it or not believe it, it's going to happen. No. Not necessarily when God says to you something in his word it gives you a promise you have to lay claim to that by faith and say Lord I believe what you've said here I have a need Lord we need the rent this month and through no fault of our own we don't have the money now I'm not saying God will necessarily drop a check from heaven on your roof he might you might find a check in the mail that's happened to us you might find groceries on the doorstep that's happened to us But more than not, more than anything else, when I've prayed to God and asked Him to provide, many times I've gotten a phone call and said, look, I've got a job for you today if you'd like to help me out. And that's a lot of times the way God provides too. But He will provide. He's faithful in providing if you will just believe Him. And what did God say through through James? If you lack wisdom, ask for it, and God will give it to you liberally. But you better ask in faith. If you don't ask in faith, He'll give you nothing. that's really how it is and the last one of course is that unbelief will remove us from the presence of God and the sense will break our fellowship and once you've broken fellowship with God all the beautiful positive blessings that are inherently a part of his nature the peace the joy the love the sweetness the everything you sever yourself from and the result is of course you begin to wither as a Christian your walk withers. Your spirituality dries up. You know, you become like David when he had sinned with Bathsheba and for a whole year was out of fellowship. Psalm 51, he recounts what that year was like. It was pretty miserable. He was sick in his spirit. He was sick in his body. He was dry. He was dead feeling. He was miserable. And so they came to Bethsaida. And Bethsaida was on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. Now why out of the town? Well, if you go back to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, Jesus had already done An incredible amount of miracles up in the area of the Galilee, which was where Bethsaida was. And yet he had been rejected, basically. And so he kind of pronounces judgment on them in verse 20. He says, then he began to upbraid or to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works, miracles had been done because they did not repent. I mean, he had done all these mighty things among them and preached the good news to them, and they did not repent. And he said in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, and so on. Jesus had pronounced judgment on these people. He had given them light, they had rejected the light, and now he was determined not to give them any more light. And that's the danger of unbelief. When God gives to you light, he brings into your life truth, and you reject the truth. And of course, in this context, he's talking about people that he's trying to get saved and they see the truth they see others who have been born again their lives have changed they hear the good news possibly even see people that got us healed or whatever and they reject the truth well you turn your back on the truth then at one point the lord gives you no more truth he imposes upon you a judicial darkness and says fine you've turned your back on the light now go ahead and live in the darkness i won't do anything more among you that's it And when the Lord finally turns his back on someone like that, I'm convinced that they don't have long to live on this earth because why would God leave them on this earth for too long if they've totally, once and for all, rejected the truth? I think that God is extremely gracious and long-suffering and will take years and years, if need be, to bring somebody to Christ. I heard a story a couple years ago about a woman whose kids and grandkids had been witnessing her for years and she died at 104 years old and two months before she died, she finally accepted Jesus Christ. It took him all that time to get her saved. And God was patient and long-suffering, knowing that she would eventually come and let this woman live for 104 years until she finally did. Can you imagine how thankful she is in heaven to the Lord? once a though, closes the door once and for all like the pharisees remember he did work after mighty work after mighty work and they said oh you cast out demons by the power of satan and he said to them in matthew 12 look guys be careful you're getting extremely close to committing blasphemy against the holy spirit and blasphemy against the holy spirit is simply rejecting the work of the spirit which points men to jesus christ and after a while it goes on to say and they could not believe. Be careful you're coming close. They had already passed then eventually the point of no return and they could not believe. And God said my spirit will not always strive with man. My spirit will not always strive with a man or a woman. He will strive with them so long trying to draw them and woo them to Jesus but if they refuse at one point that's it. And the spirit leaves and that person's fate is sealed and i don't see why god would leave them on this earth too much longer than that so Bethsaida had rejected him and he had pretty much then rejected them and so he was determined not to even give any more testimony to his power and to who he was in that city but he wasn't rejecting individuals you know it's like God hopefully hasn't, but possibly has rejected America. We don't know. We sure hope not. But it looks pretty dark for our country. But even if God has said it's too late for America, that doesn't mean he's ever turned turns his back on individuals in America that still want to be saved. And here was a guy who was blind, and oftentimes in Scripture, spiritually speaking, blindness, was, which was physical in this man's case, could be used of a spiritual blindness. The guy was blind physically, but blind spiritually also. And so Jesus took him by the hand and led him out of the town. And here we have a miracle only recorded by Mark. We don't see it any other place. And it's no doubt one of the strangest miracles that Jesus ever did. It's totally unique. You'll never find anything like it in any of the other Gospels. It's a gradual healing. Never did Jesus heal anyone else gradually. It was always instantaneous. It was always complete. But listen, so he took the guy by the hand and let him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, and you think, well, gee, Lord, God, a guy asks you to heal him and you spit in his eyes <laughs> in my commentaries when I was reading today um, several of them pointed out that in the ancient world they believed that there was some kind of a healing power attached to spittle you know you think oh, that's kind of weird well when you think about it, though, if you cut your finger you burn yourself what's the first place you want to put it in your mouth there's some about you know your saliva that has some kind of a healing power and they kind of kind of Believed that now it wasn't Jesus' spit that really had the magic power, but I love the Lord because in the gospel seven times we have recorded blind men that Jesus healed. He probably healed others, but we only have seven recorded. And with all these guys, he used a variety of ways to heal them. Some he one guy he spit on the ground and made clay, he put it in the guy's eyes, and said go wash in the pool of Siloam. One guy he spits on his eyes. Some he speaks to and they receive their sight. And I love the Lord. I believe, again, that was by design. He didn't want us to put him in a box, you know. He didn't want us to force him into a pattern to say, well, you're blind, you want a healing. Well, Jesus always did it like this. So we have to do it like this, see. And yet there's a danger of trying to put God in a box. And a lot of people have put God in a box in many ways. Well, this is the only way to evangelize this is the way we've always done it the only way God wants to be done and so on or you're baptized in the Holy Spirit you have to speak in tongues because that's just the way it has to be God always does it that way no he doesn't no he doesn't that's how you think he always does it you've put God in a box but he won't remain in your box he will do something that will defy your little pattern and really upset you and rock the boat because he doesn't want you to get locked into patterns you know, he wants you to let him be God and do the work that he wants to do in a variety of ways to keep us on our toes and to seek him for each new strategy, for each new situation. Anyways, he spit in his, uh, on his eyes and put his hands on him and asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Now, this is a strange thing, Okay. Jesus spit in the guy's eyes, put his hands over his eyes, and when he took his hand off of his eyes, he said, do you see anything? And the guy says, well, I, I see it's blurry, what he was saying. It's not clear. It's it's kind of foggy, but I see uh, I see men look that look like trees walking. Now, you can pray about all the spiritual implications attached to this section, and if you come up with some things that sound real neat, share them with me, will you? because to tell you the truth i can't begin to tell you all what's going on here i, I really don't know to tell you the truth okay i'm just going to share you, share with you some of the things that i feel the lord's trying to teach through this and, and and we'll move on because i i really don't i can't tell you well was he you know was it was it some kind of spirit thing he was seeing in the spirit realm and uh i don't know and i don't think anybody does I think basically, maybe we shouldn't read into this any more than what we just see here. Jesus took his hands away from the guy's eyes, and he saw people, but his vision was so blurred still that it was kind of like, you know, you, you pull your, your corners of your eyes, everything kind of gets out of focus and kind of stretched out and things. That could be all he's talking about. He saw, but not clearly. And verse 25 says, Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. So the Lord puts his hands on him again and removes his hands and says, Now how do you, what do you see? And, and everything was clear. His vision was completely restored. And he sent him away to his house saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. So in other words, hey, Jesus had written off Bethsaida. Don't go back there. It's a dead issue. But go everywhere else and tell what God had done, has done for you. Now, as I said, this is the only recorded miracle where Jesus healed in stages. we healed gradually. And I love the Lord because I believe that He did this to tell us that there are miracles that the Lord will do that sometimes aren't instantaneous. That the Lord will sometimes work in a powerful even miraculous way but it doesn't necessarily have to be instantaneous that sometimes he will do it in stages and a lot of people that are really really against the whole healing thing you know and I don't get me wrong there's a lot of abuses in that whole deal but I believe God heals don't throw the baby out with the bath water just because there are abuses and excesses don't just reject the whole thing and say well God doesn't heal anymore and if he did, why don't we just, you know, if you guys have got the gift of healing, go to the hospitals and heal everybody, empty the place out. Well, God's still sovereign. I mean, he gives me a gift. Doesn't mean I can just exercise it at will and do whatever I want with it. Even Jesus didn't heal everybody he came in contact with. He healed everybody he wanted to heal. But in John chapter 5, by the pool of Bethesda, there was a lot of sick and lame people laying around. He healed one crippled guy and left. The point is that I believe that God will do some miracles gradually i think that every time you go to a doctor we'll say if you have an operation and they sew you up you know that god is at work bringing the tissue together and causing everything to kind of mend and you know okay that might be a more of a natural thing but there is such a thing as looking at events in our lives in a supernatural yet natural way god works how can i put this god works in a very natural but supernatural way. Seeing the supernatural behind the natural. I mean, so many times God brings things into our lives and does certain things, and we think, oh, well, just coincidence or natural course of things. Yeah, but who's behind the scenes, you know? Who's behind the scenes? Sometimes God will work a total supernatural miracle. Sometimes it will work a miracle that seems almost natural, but you get the definite impression... There's something supernatural going on behind the natural. So I believe that, you know, the Lord heals in a variety of ways. And we shouldn't limit God. We shouldn't, you know, uh, put him in a box and and limit his power. And some people say, well, you know, these people that go to these faith healers and they get prayed over and they're healed, well, we believe it was all psychosomatic to begin with. Well, maybe it was. Maybe the person really thought in their mind they were sick. And when somebody prayed over them, all of a sudden now they believe they're not sick. Who cares? They're still feeling better, right? I mean, they still get healed. Why should we? Why should we argue over it? You know, they're, the bottom line is they've been healed—healed healed of a mental block or a physical thing. But it doesn't matter. And so he healed this guy and restored his sight, and he saw it clearly. And from a very practical, physical standpoint, we can see what the Lord was doing here possibly and probably giving us one miracle that would again not cause us to limit God by saying every divine healing has to be instantaneous no we could point to this and say no sometimes God will do things in a gradual way we know that Jesus of course could have healed him instantaneously we know that some people say well his faith hindered it I don't necessarily believe that some people say well was the the whole unbelieving atmosphere in Bethsaida which hindered him because in Nazareth he couldn't do a lot of mighty works because of their unbelief. So, yeah, but but he took them out of the city, and I don't think the Lord's limited, anyways, to our unbelief or by our unbelief. He may honor it in the sense that he won't work if we don't believe, but it doesn't mean he is subject to our unbelief. If he wants to do something, he's going to do it, and I don't care if I believe or not, he's going to do it. From a spiritual standpoint, you can see in this guy kind of a symbol of the natural man from his unconverted state to converted state to the eternal state. Here's a guy who was taken out of a doomed city by Jesus Christ, who was blind, and the Bible says before we knew Christ, we're all blind, right? Remember the blind guy in John 9, who Jesus healed and said, once I was blind, but now I see. That's our testimony. Once we were blind to the things of God, but now we see. And yet, as Paul said, even when we are made Christians, we don't see clearly, do we? We see the spirit realm as looking through a very dark or dirty window, you know? Things of God are kind of fuzzy. We we don't fully understand God, obviously. So a lot of things about God are just real fuzzy to us. And and we see through a, a glass darkly, he said, right? Like this guy, when Jesus touched him the first time, he saw, but everything was really fuzzy and not clear but eventually the bible says i am going to see clearly i'm going to know him even as i am known and at that time i'm going to have excellent spiritual 2020 vision i'm going to be able to see things perfectly See, so maybe the spiritual way the lord was using him to teach us that lesson all right just kind of wrapping everything up as these guys were coming back now from this extended period of ministry and remember, as I said before, he is withdrawing more and more from the multitudes. Yes, he is healing people still. He's, he hasn't withdrawn completely. But if you notice, he is spending more time with his men and allowing them to be a, to participate in these works and all and in these ministry opportunities because, again, he's getting them ready to take over for him when he goes. And we're now into the last half of his life before the cross and more and more he realizes that the time is coming when he's gonna be taken away from them and he needs to get them ready he needs to spend time pulling away from the multitudes a little bit or a lot really to focus more on his men to get them ready to take over when he will be taken from them and he's using every opportunity he can to teach them lessons they're gonna need for when they finally take over the mantle and the ministry And become his body on the earth as he has taken from them there's lessons that he is teaching them and the first lesson that surfaces here in verse 11 and 12 is that we or that they needed to and of course we do too we need to not seek after signs and wonders and run around looking for supernatural things and everything but we need to learn to trust him and build our lives simply on his word through faith that's a very important lesson not walking by sight but walking by faith not running around as some do looking for the supernatural and everything hey supernatural things of God are great I love to see more miracles I love to see God working more powerfully in supernatural ways but they are not to be the thing we build our lives on. not the experiences not the experiential we're to build our lives in the word of God that's to be the foundation so they needed to know that they needed to learn that lesson Also, they needed to learn to be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod, which was hypocrisy, self-righteousness, false doctrine, and worldliness. They needed to be careful because in ministry, there is a great amount of pressure exerted on people in ministry. And Satan does this to get them into the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. I can't tell you how many ministers have fallen through the gold, the glory, and the girls. You know, and, and the Lord is warning them: be careful, don't get so, don't become puffed up where you begin to think like a Pharisee, self-righteously, proud, and all of this. Uh, be careful of that whole thing. Be careful of the worldliness, and all, many times the power and the prestige that comes along with ministry. Be careful; it's leaven. It'll corrupt you from within. It'll destroy your ministry. They had to know that. Also, they had to learn that Jesus would provide every single need that they had. It was not going to be a problem. All the physical needs that they had, the Lord would provide. He says, "Look, don't you understand yet? Have you having eyes? do you not see, having ears? do you not hear? Do you not remember and so on and so forth. The lesson was, look, gang, every physical need that you have, I will meet. It doesn't matter how you know how am I going to do it? I'll do it. How I do it is my business." You believing that I'm going to do it is yours. And I've shown you many times that I've able to supply your physical needs where there looked like there was no way. I've multiplied small amounts of food and I've fed thousands of people. Don't focus on the physical. Get your eyes off the physical and get your eyes on the spirit and live at the level of the spirit and stop worrying about all this stuff that is legitimate and yet something the father's promised that he was going to provide and finally he wanted them to learn the lesson that he will not be put in a box that he works in a variety of ways so let him let him that's the wonder of god that he is sovereign and he will work his work in a variety of ways and he refuses to let me limit him and if I try to limit him I'm just going to become frustrated because he's going to work outside my little box and I'm going to get frustrated and upset that he's doing that. Now Lord why did you heal that person over there? You know they're into the positive confession. Why did you do that Lord? You know their theology doesn't sound like mine and I used to get upset about that. I mean there was a couple in our church years ago and they were into the positive confession. I'm into the church, and I try to talk to them about it, and yet I saw God working in their lives in certain ways, and I got frustrated and upset, and I said, Lord, why are you doing that? Why are you blessing that you know they're into this false teaching? And I felt like the Lord spoke to my heart and says, yeah, they're not right as far as some of the things they believe, but they're praying in faith, and I honor faith, see? And I love them, and I'm going to work in their lives. I'm going to heal them because I love them. I'm convinced... That you know, there are times when we're off theologically in some things, and God still works, because He loves us, and because He wants to heal us. We'll say He wants to provide our needs. I'm not saying, of course, that we should condone blatant false doctrine. I'm just trying to say that you know, there are people that are into the positive confession thing, and they honestly believe with all their hearts. I don't believe that doctrine is right. I believe it's off base. It's off balance, and a lot of those folks get healed. They have their needs met is god honoring their doctor no he's showing his love towards them personally and he will honor faith see so you know it's one of those things where they we need to remember that god is going to work in a variety of ways and we have to let him let him be god and pray and just seek him for what he wants to do and then get on board don't stand in the way because he'll run you over either we jump on board with what god wants to do in this area and pray and say, Lord, what do you? How do you want to reach this these communities for you? Instead of saying, Well, here, Lord, here's how we're going to do it. Now jump on our program, Lord. Get on our team here. And you bless us Now we're going to go out there. We're going to get them, Lord. We figured it all out. And God say, No, I don't want to do it that way. If I do it that way, you're going to get, you're going to get puffed up. Here's the way I want to do it. Hey, jump on my team. Say, get behind me. And I tell you, I want to get behind the Lord. Otherwise, He'll run me over. <laughs> Uh, I'd rather get on his team. So these were lessons that they needed to learn and lessons that we need to learn. And uh, hopefully uh, we will and uh, have. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord, because you're so awesome and so incredible. And, Lord, we just thank you and praise you that you are God and so thankful that we aren't. Uh, So thankful, Lord, that you're in control. So thankful that you're all wise and all-knowing and all-powerful and sovereign and we just pray lord you'll help us to learn the lessons that you tried to teach your men as you walked with them lessons that they were a little slow in learning lessons that we seem to be oftentimes slow in learning the lessons that we desperately need to learn lord and most of all the lesson we need to learn above all else is that we need to trust you if you say something you you mean it you will do it if we will not but believe you and not doubt. Forgive us for our great sin of unbelief, Lord. Forgive us that even though we have your promises, we so often waver through unbelief, and we so often fall into despair and depression and anxiety because we can't seem to bring ourselves to believe something you've told us. That's such a sin, and Father, we're so sorry because we recognize how wrong that is Help us to be like children, Lord, just to take what you have said to heart and rejoice in it, even though we don't see the fulfillment yet, but we know that what you have promised you will perform. We just love you, Lord. Help us to be believing and no longer unbelieving. And then we pray you pour your spirit out upon us and through us to accomplish the work that only you can do, Lord, in this area in which we live. We are want to be yielded instruments that you might use to accomplish your work, to give sight to those that are blind, who are living in a condemned and sinful world. Help us to be those lights. Father, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.